The life of a plant must be a bit of a roller coaster. If animals aren't chewing on you, tearing at you, stepping on you, and releasing bodily fluids on you, insects are gnawing at you, making nests out of you, and infecting you. Droughts are dehydrating you, floods are drowning you, and you're freezing your butt off in the winter. If plants could talk, right? Maybe they'd just say, bring it on. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots of Climate Solutions, we're looking at grazing and its impacts on the land. Today I'm speaking with plant ecologist and PhD student Jessica Grenke and Matheus Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management, Professor Edward Borg of the University of Alberta. Today we're going to talk about adaptive multi-paddock grazing or AMP grazing. Now, if you haven't heard of AMP grazing before, you're probably familiar with the other names that it has. So people refer to it as rotational grazing or intensive grazing. So we're going to talk about that today in relation to the land and the impacts it has on the land. So I'm just going to open things up with Jessica. Uh, Jessica, I read in your bio for the University of Alberta, you're investigating plant community characteristics. What does that mean exactly? Uh, yeah, so a plant community you can think of as... Uh, the neighborhood of where a plant is living. So which other plants are next to the plant are the neighbors of that plant that directly impact how it lives its life. Um, and uh, so my research is looking at who those neighbors are. That's the most basic thing you can think of when you know, you're thinking about a neighborhood, who are the neighbors? So what species is the typical one? Um, and then what the neighbors are like. So that's things like traits. So even if, um, even within a single species, you can have lots of different um, sizes of leaves, um, morphologies of the plants, just different strategies of living their lives within one species. And uh, finally, I'm looking at what specific things influence who they are and what they look like. Like, what is shaping the makeup of this neighborhood? Um, so, obviously, uh, the main one would be grazing management. So, how does the way you manage your livestock influence what plants are there and um, what they look like and how they function? But we're also looking at things like uh, the climate and the environment. Like you might imagine if resources are lower, um, maybe you're going to interact with your neighbors a little bit differently. And I know just like just before you got to the recording studio today, you said you were working in the lab, but was a lab up on the roof, I think? You yeah, yeah. So I, I look at this question from uh, an operational viewpoint. So going out to ranches and seeing what is there as a result of decades of management. Um, but we're also looking at what gears actually make this relationship work. So <clears throat> we might, out in the field, I might be able to say this particular way of managing things typically leads to this kind of community. But if you want to look under the hood, so to speak, and talk about what is specifically causing that end result, it helps to have um, an environment a little less messy than a ranch when there's so many different variables at play. So by um, doing some rooftop research on specific aspects of grazing management, um, I can get a cleaner picture at what exactly is influencing that end result. So for example, plant competition is a big part of the um, experiment um, that I'm running right now in those controlled conditions. Um, 
And like we know competition influences plant communities. You might imagine if your neighbor was stealing half of your food, that's going to influence how you live your life, right? And what strategies you adopt. Um, so the experimental part just helps to get a finer view at how things are working. Okay, this could be a real stupid question, but if you're looking sure at the not. impacts of grazing <laughs> on top of the roof of what you got going on there, is there something on top of the roof grazing right now? <laughs> Just scissors. Oh, okay. Yeah, the permit <laughs> for sense. a cow didn't really go through, so we would have loved that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, we use clipping to simulate grazing. Okay, okay. Well, this could have been a whole different episode there for a second. <laughs> that would have been fun to talk about. Cows on the roof. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, now, I know what a previous conversation we had uh, i can definitely tell like you're really really passionate about plants but you, you, like you're not really a farm kid either i'm just wondering you know, how come you're so crazy about plants yeah so i did not grow up on a farm but i did grow up outside a lot like my parents had the philosophy that um in the summers like you weren't allowed inside of a house until dinner time kind of thing so I just grew up outside in the woods and I think that just does something to who you are and what you value and I'm incredibly lucky to have grown up outside the way that I did it's a great privilege for sure um but I mean also just just through learning things like at the university here um like plants are also just ground zero for everything that happens on earth right like they are the line between sunlight and energy that most aspects of the ecosystem can use um then they shape what the terrestrial landscape looks like um, to to such a fundamental degree because of that, but they're so they're, they're criminally understudied and underthought about. There's actually a term for that called um, plant blindness. It's a hmm. just the it's it's the it's basically the way that we as humans tend to overlook plants in favor of more charismatic species like animals. Hmm. And I don't know. My sense of justice is <laughs> offended by that. They are so important and. Um, so understudied and they need to be looked at more, not just because of that role, but because it harms us not to know about plants because they play such a huge role in what the earth does, what it looks like, um, how it responds to, you know, a changing climate. Um, this lack of knowledge is going to harm us in the long run. So yeah, that's, those are a couple of reasons. Okay. So with that uh, plant community you're studying right now, I'm just curious, how, how does grazing either, you know, help or hinder that community? Yeah, so we are uh, still looking through the results. So they are preliminary as of now. Um, but grazing has complicated um, impacts to plant communities. Okay. So help or harm or like value related terms right mm, so depending point. what you want mm. to see from a landscape um a response to grazing could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing there's there's things that a lot of people do agree are beneficial from a landscape so generally um like for example if you're managing for wildlife you might want a more heterogeneous and just variable landscape right so there's habitat for a lot of different species in an area um, especially if they have like, you know, different strategies for lives, like classic example being grouse who might need an open area to lek and then an enclosed area to nest. Um, so in that case, you're going to want more patchy grazing to achieve, you know, um, a helpful landscape, quote unquote. 
Um, but in other cases, maybe you're trying to maximize as much um, production and weight gain on your cattle as you can. And in that case, you might want a lot of a species that has a lot of sugar and leads to a lot of um, quick weight gain in cattle. In that case, you might not want as much diversity from a particular area. You might select for a species, which is high in sugars, right? Um, so I guess a roundabout way of answering your question is, um, grazing is effective, um, in certain cases at achieving certain goals that you'll have from your land. Um, and the better idea you have of how exactly grazing modifies your landscape, the more effective a tool it's going to be at reaching those goals. Mm-hmm. Good answer. Okay. And um, also something that came out of a previous conversation we had, and you know, you may have answered this when you were talking about plant blindness, but this uh, this connection between grassland management, biodiversity, soil carbon sequestration, uh, we were talking about how it's really poorly understood. Any specific reason as to why, or any theories <laughs> you want to throw out? Is it just because it's so complex, or uh, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, you've hit it. It is. Uh... So there, there's a few reasons. So, um, and, and this is my opinion. So ranches are very difficult study units because there are a million different variables happening at once. And as scientists, in order to convince our fellow scientists um, and able to be, you know, statistically and um, rigorously sure that something is happening, we do need relatively controlled conditions or we need to be able to account for different conditions somehow. So for ranching, where every single ranch is kind of its own kingdom, right? So every ranch is going to be very different. They're Mm -hmm. not designed for an experiment. Um, In order to account for that, you need a larger sample size so you can control for those variables better. Um, And for that, you need a lot of money and you need a lot of time and you need a lot of expertise um, and connections with the ranching community to find volunteers willing to join on. So that's why that's one of the reasons why our project is um, relatively unique. Like we were fortunate enough to get quite a large grant in order to financially be able to do this. Mm. Um, And we had a team of PIs with great connections to the ranching community who were able to leverage those to find amazing volunteers who let us do research on their land. Um, And we were able to travel like our my study breadth um, of my study sites is 1200 kilometers alone and most research programs just simply cannot afford that that's just too far to travel it's a multi-year study we were able to account for things like different climates by doing repeat measurements over years again that is more money and um to more specifically answer your question about um like ranching and soil carbon and plants that requires a lot of experts from all those different areas working together. No one person is an expert in any of those fields. So you also need um, a collaborative team of experts in those different areas working together. Mm. So our project is just incredible because of those reasons. Just the scale and the level of collaboration we have has enabled us to start to get at those questions um, in a way that was just too difficult before. Hmm. 
I can see that being really frustrating with, like you're saying, like ranches aren't exactly the best research or experiment area because every ranch is different. It's not like, you know, Petri dishes and all that. So I see that being <laughs> frustrating, right. but maybe adds to the fun a little bit. I don't, I've never done that kind of work, though. Yeah. No, the variability makes it fun. If every ranch was the same, um, yeah, it'd be a lot less fun. Like, I mean, my experimental conditions, I have tubs of plants and uh, they're all exactly the same. Not exactly as fun as meeting ranchers. <laughs> yeah, there's some characters out there for sure. Right, as I understand, I know you run a farm right now, but did you grow up on a farm? I did. Okay, whereabouts and what did you grow up with? Uh, our farm is located about 80 kilometers northeast of Edmonton. <clears throat> and it's a mixed farm, so it's a cow-calf operation with significant amount of green and oil seeds as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we've done over over the last number of years, probably the last 15, 20 years, is we've taken a lot of the marginal land and converted it over into forage production, mm-hmm. knowing that the, the best use of that land was for forage production. Okay. And I think the, the main reason that I became so interested in range management, um, as I grew up, I saw a lot of changes that were happening in, in the agricultural landscape, a lot of land clearing going on, a lot of grassland conversion. And one of the things that I I also observed is a significant difference between the profitability of what was going on in the cow-calf sector as opposed to the grain and oil seeds. And after I completed all of my academic training, something that lingered in the back of my mind was, why isn't it more profitable to produce beef in this country when that's one of the most environmentally sustainable uses of that land mm. and uh and based on that that's where i think a lot of my my research interests have come from okay okay interesting and um it sounds like you've been involved in rangeland research for a while and i'm just curious like how has it changed over the years from like when you began to what's going on right now there's been a lot of changes in the discipline of of range research. I think if you go back all the way to before I was even born, a lot of the range research that was being done was really commodity based. So it was consistently looking at how many pounds are of beef or forage or wool are we producing from a given area. And most of the work that was going on was looking at ways to try to increase that, either the quality or the amount of it. But over the last 20 to 25 years has been a lot more interest in understanding the environmental goods and services. So the broader suite of benefits that society receives from these areas. So not just the commodity-based, you know, pounds of beef, but also things like the amount of biodiversity out there. So, and that biodiversity could be pollinators, which are benefiting society in, in many other ways, you know, providing security for our food supply but also things like consumptive wildlife species and even species at risk. So species that we may not be interested in consuming directly, but we still have a significant interest in them. And it extends also to things like water storage, water purification, carbon storage, and greenhouse gas mitigation. These are all benefits that Mm -hmm. society receives in general, broader citizens across the country and globally, but I don't think we really have a good handle on. And so a lot of range research now is starting to shift towards looking at the extent to which these grasslands provide these EGNSs mm. 
and are trying to put a dollar value on them. And I think that's an important process because it would then enable us to go back to the beef industry and try to allocate further dollars to reward those producers for maintaining or enhancing mm. those EG and S's. Okay. I'm also kind of curious, like, what do you think uh, affected that shift that all of a sudden they decided, okay, we're going to start considering ecosystem goods and services. We're going to start considering carbon stocks and stuff like that. Like, any idea why that happened, when it happened? I, I think it's being largely driven by the consumer, by increased awareness by consumers and concern for where their food is coming from mm -hmm. and the impact that it's having on the environment. Mm -hmm. And so that reflects both in their direct behavior in terms of what they're buying and how much they're buying and, and where they're sourcing it through. But it, it also has a direct effect on industry themselves because industry looks around and says, well, if consumers don't have confidence, enough confidence to buy my product, that's going to take away from their social license to operate. So it could affect them in other ways if they're not careful. So there's been a real significant shift, including by some of the funding agencies, to realize that we need to have that sound information on the EGNSs that are being provided by these grasslands mm. so that the beef industry can continue to operate. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the project that both you guys are involved in, because actually I didn't realize how big it was. I think I actually think the ranch I was on last year is part of the project. I'm not too sure if Tamara Ranch and Red Deer's in it, but I, I know there have been scientists from U of A there. But my understanding of the project at the time was just a few ranches in Alberta, but I didn't realize how big it was. I didn't realize all these different things in the scope. So yeah, if you could just ex talk about the project, what you guys are trying to do geographically, where it is, just give folks an overview. Sure. So... The, the AMP project or adaptive multi-paddock project is basically trying to address this issue of can we use specialized rotational grazing systems to change the suite of ecosystem goods and services that are provided by these grasslands. Mm. And so when we think about AMP grazing, this adaptive multi-paddock, well, what does it mean? It basically means that a producer is taking a large tract of land they're dividing it up to many smaller pastures or paddocks. And then they're rotating their animals through those paddocks relatively quickly. So grazing periods might be as short as half a day. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, as long as a day or two. But then they're moving them out very quickly. And what that does, it allows for a, a very limited impact of defoliation. And more importantly, there's a lengthy recovery time, often 60 or 80 days during the growing season for the vegetation to recover. And the working hypothesis is basically that these AMP grazing systems, so these pulses of use followed by a long recovery period, allow for more effective recovery by the plants, which in turn can increase biomass, can increase their productivity. And because they're increasing their productivity, they're going to be fixing more carbon and building up more soil carbon and more effective at reducing the greenhouse gas footprint of, of the cattle industry, mm -hmm. the people that are using those lands to produce livestock. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are some of the, the, the fundamental tenets that we're comparing. And there's a myriad of grazing systems that are out there. AMP grazing systems just happen to be one of the more specialized forms of grazing that's out there. Okay. 
And is like one of the points of the project, because as as I understand it, and totally correct me if I'm wrong here, there's really no baseline data for a lot of this. Like so with ecosystem goods and services, we haven't been keeping track of that before. Carbon stocks definitely were keeping track of before. So are you guys really developing a lot of that baseline data for the prairies, really? So some of our earlier research actually dug into looking at some of the the baseline or benchmark oh, okay, carbon okay. stocks that we see across the grasslands of, of Western Canada. Okay. And so we did complete a, an extensive study in Alberta from 108 different locations where we looked at how much carbon is actually stored in the above ground vegetation, in the mulch and litter that's on the top of the soil, and then in the, the, the topsoil itself down to 30 centimeter depth. And what a lot of people will find surprising is that if you look at the size of the carbon pools, it's actually quite astounding that it's not that dissimilar from what we see in the boreal forest Hmm. with even our arid grasslands storing around 40 to 45 tons of carbon per hectare. And some of our more mesic and productive grasslands in the foothills of Alberta are holding upwards of 150 tons per hectare of carbon or more. So these are these are very large amounts, especially when you start thinking about the spatial footprint and the extent of these grasslands, which are covering 10 million plus hectares across the prairie provinces. And Jessica, why exactly in your study are you guys looking at adaptive multi-paddock grazing and its impact on the land specifically? Like, why not just grazing in general? Uh, yeah, so... As Edward has mentioned, um, AMP grazing is one of many different systems. Uh, there's a suite to study, um, and it was a it was a real um, a real like point of decision making early on in the project which one we were going to focus on. Um, but AMP is useful as um, as a focus of a study, as it lies uh, as we've already alluded to, like on the far end of um, the intensity of management attention. So, um, like if you're moving your cattle two times a day, for example, you're paying a lot of attention to specific impacts to different parts of the land. Um, so it's just a finer scale system of grazing management than a lot of other ones. Mm -hmm. Um, and since it lies on the far end of, um, just lots and lots and lots of management attention on the land, if grazing management systems have an impact on plants at all, you would expect them to occur under these, under the far scale of a management system, Mm -hmm. right? Versus, you know, a more, um, like standard, uh, less intensive way of, of managing. Uh, so just for the sake of that contrast alone, since this is a baseline study and we are collecting data that just isn't known about private ranching across Western Canada at all, it was a useful starting point. The thing that confused me with grasslands and cattle grazing because when I think of a plant, and the leaves of the plant, they're like solar panels. You know, the bigger the solar plant panel, the more solar I should be able to produce for energy. So if you have these big things grazing and nibbling at those leaves, does that mean grazing detrimental to soil carbon sequestration because we're making smaller solar panels? In theory, that's true. But the impact is short-lived if the leaf area reduction is only temporary. 
Okay. So once you reduce the leaf area directly through defoliation, it's true you're actually fixing less carbon. But there are instances where the impact of grazing can actually increase overall productivity. And so there are several examples. One example would be that if in the absence of grazing, that growth actually ends early during the growing season and you actually still have two months of growing season left. So if those plants reach their peak growth and senesce, they're no longer going to be fixing a whole lot of carbon. But if you have defoliated them prior to then and then they exhibit regrowth, you can actually get more in terms of the total fixation that occurs. Mm -hmm. And in rare instances, you can actually get something called overcompensation which is where the sum of biomass produced during the growing season actually exceeds what you would have had in the non-defoliated state. Hmm. Okay. So that it's, it all hinges on that notion of overcompensation. The, the other component to keep in mind that grazing may actually change some of the abiotic conditions. So things like litter loads and so on, and the turnover of litter and incorporation of nutrients back into the soil mm. may be important in helping facilitate plant community renewal and therefore ongoing biomass productivity. Mm -hmm. And so again, in extreme situations, if you have really high rainfall grasslands, and they build up so much litter for a number of years in the absence of grazing, they actually start to stagnate and your productivity goes down. Okay. So there are instances where that the key to maintaining productivity in grasslands is definitely tied to at least some presence of grazing. The question is where, how much, and how often. That's really what it comes down to. Mm. Can we answer those here and now? <laughs> <laughs> that's what we are trying to do with the AMP study. So that's one of our objectives. And uh, I think another thing that sets the AMP study apart from a lot of previous investigations is a lot of other studies we use very tightly controlled modification of the timing or the extent of defoliation here. But in this case, we're actually working with commercial cattle ranchers that demonstrate a true continuum of livestock producer behavior. Right. So no two producers are actually using the exact same stocking rate or the exact same um, length of grazing period or length of recovery period and so on. And so we can actually dig down into the individual nuances of the producer behavior to try to more fully understand how maybe the adaptive nature that each and every one of them are employing or the group is employing across the spectrum and how that might be changing that flow of ecosystem goods and services, including productivity. Hmm. Okay. I get it. One thing I think I did not explain very well in my solar panel analogy, just in case people don't realize this, but through photosynthesis, that's how plants sequester carbon. And just a really quick follow-up question there. Um, when, uh, like when grass is headed out, so when everything goes to seed, is it photosynthesis? Man, I always have trouble with that word. Photosynthesizing much because it's not really looking very green at that point. No, it, it's essentially slowing down. It's so when, when plants have headed out and they've produced seed, they've filled their, their life cycle for the year and they've basically done what they needed to do and then they're going to go into a dormant stage. Okay. And some of those grasses may continue to regrow. So when temperatures cool down and if there's good moisture at the end of the year, 
Some of those species may continue to regrow, but many of them, especially if they've reached seed, they're done for the year. They're shutting down. Okay, and okay. so you're absolutely right. If you do not have active photosynthesis, you do not have carbon input taking place. Okay. So hence why it's good to keep it in that green vegetative state. Okay. A- absolutely. Okay. We're always trying to balance what we're taking off with what the tolerance and the recoverability is of the vegetation. And if we can find that sweet spot, which is going to vary for different plant species, because no two plant species are identical in terms of their tolerance and their ability to sustain regrowth and therefore ongoing carbon fixation. Okay, okay, okay. And what are some of the other factors that impact uh, soil carbon sequestration? Well, the big one is climate, undoubtedly, because if you don't have enough water to sustain growth throughout the growing season then growth is going to start shutting down prematurely. So if you're in the dry mixed grass prairie region and the taps have turned off at the end of June or mid-July, everything goes dormant. It, it doesn't matter what plants you have. If you don't have enough water, it's not, going to, it's, it's not going to be growing and it's not going to be fixing more carbon. So moisture is the, is the big one. Uh, but there can also be differences among plant communities. You can have some plants that are inherently more grazing tolerant and therefore regrow faster than others. Uh, another, another comparison is maybe a difference between native plant species and some of our tame agronomics because the native plant species are notorious for having a very high proportion of their biomass below ground. Mm. So if, if a plant community has 85% of its biomass below ground, then that means as those roots die and turn over, which happens very regularly, they're constantly adding carbon into the soil, which then contributes to a very protected pool of carbon below ground, Mm. which turns over very slowly and therefore accumulates over time. Mm. Some of our agronomics are the exact opposite. Mm. We've selected and bred species to produce lots of biomass above ground because we want to graze it. But the result is that that biomass is very susceptible to turnover, whether it's due to fire or whether it's due to hay harvesting or grazing and therefore turns over very quickly. It's not that that biomass isn't important, but it doesn't necessarily build long-term soil carbon as effectively. Hmm. And I think that's another aspect of this study, which is so great. Um, If this wasn't clear before, we also have researchers looking at the respiration of the soil. So we get a clear picture of how much um, gas might be released by those microbes as they digest that plant material. Like as Edward's been saying, typically more grazing tolerant species. um, So usually non-native agronomic species tend to have like um, biomass that will degrade quickly. And there is the potential, we don't know, that could lead to greater release of um, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, just Hmm. to complicate things more. So our study is not only looking at one meter deep levels of soil carbon, we're also looking at um, how respiration plays a role in this ecosystem service. Hmm. Actually, this might be a good time to just talk about those microbes. Uh, I know it's something we hadn't discussed before we came in here, but I think it's because I think when we talk about soil carbon sequestration, we think it's like, oh, it's the dirt that's holding it. Not quite. It's those itty bitty bitty microorganisms. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know which one of you guys want to take. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to jump in. <laughs> no, no, no. You, go for it. Uh, yeah, maybe we just talk a bit about the microbes and like uh, how that sequestration process works. Like we're talking about slower slowing down that decomposition or that digestion seems to be a benefit, but maybe just for people that don't really know. Sure. So the 
much of the organic matter that's actually held in the soil is within complex organic modern organic molecules basically and a lot of that is actually within what we call microbial biomass okay so it's a it, you know if we think about where the biomass is in a typical grassland you know we often think if it's in the birds or it's in the large mammals above ground that's not where it is mm. there's far more biomass in the vegetation but if you take the vegetation and multiply it by another magnitude of order of 10 or 20 there's that much microbial biomass in the ground. It's, wow. it's huge. So the bulk of the actual living biomass is in the microbial community. So it's not just bacteria, it's fungi, it's archaea. And that's really the major storehouse for that carbon that's sitting in the ground. Okay. And anything that you do to the surface of that grassland that changes things like moisture or temperature. So for example, if you overgraze, you take off too much litter, it heats up the soil, those microbes are going to become more active mm. because they're basically regulated by temperature and moisture. Mm. So the higher the temperature, they have the ability to then break down more of that organic matter over time. And through that breakdown, one of the byproducts is obviously CO2. Mm. And so under a given land use, over the long term, the, the soil carbon levels as regulated by that soil microbial community is typically in equilibrium with both whatever the climatic regime is and whatever the ongoing land use regime is. Okay. But if you change the land use, you will change the net turnover of that carbon. So, for example, when we take a pristine grassland, native grassland, and we put a plow to it, we suddenly increase the temperature we suddenly alter the moisture dynamics and we alter the inputs. And what happens is the carbon starts breaking down much faster than what we're adding to it through our annual plant contributions. The net result is that after five to 10 years, we'll have anywhere between 30 to 50% less carbon within the system. Okay. So, and it's the microbes that are basically regulating that. Okay. Okay. So if it gets warmer, the microbes start like digesting or working yeah. quicker and the moisture impacts the microbes because it's a temperature regulator? Or? It, it, uh, microbes need moisture, a certain amount of moisture okay. and temperature in order to increase their activity. So if you have too much moisture, if you'll get true anaerobic conditions mm -hmm. and, and you'll have no decomposition, which is what happens in a peatland. <laughs> Oh, okay, but okay. if you have a super dry soil, you'll also have very little microbial activity. But if you have a, a moderate amount of moisture and high temperature, the microbes love it. Okay. That's a perfect environment. And so as long as, as long, you know, if we have a mesic grassland, anything we can do to keep that soil temperature down mm -hmm. conserves that carbon. And, and anything we can do to put more carbon below ground, like our native grasslands are doing, will build and maintain more of that carbon over time. Okay. Okay. I think I'm getting it. All right. Well, there are another or a specific subset of microbes that I do want to talk about because methane comes up in conversation a lot when it comes to cattle. And I'm giving a talk this Wednesday and they're going to ask me about cattle. So I'm hoping you can help me out here. Uh, I might not be pronouncing it right, but methanotrophs are bacteria that can sequester methane when i think of sequestering i always think of plants and co2 how the heck are these little guys getting access to the methane how are they pull how does this process work because i just discovered this last year and i haven't been able to find a heck of a lot of data maybe i should do better research though <laughs> so 
methanotrophs are basically uh, microbial organisms that use methane as their source of energy and and carbon. So food reserves, basically. Okay. So, and the critical difference here is that if you have a healthy population of methanotrophs in in the soil, they're actually catabolizing or metabolizing the actual methane. And the source of methane is typically what's coming out of the air. Mm. And so this is an interesting kind of reversal of the pattern where we often think about cows being methane producers because everyone realizes that being ruminants, cows have enteric methane production and so their belching is releasing a certain amount of methane to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And they're often implicated as, hey, wait a minute, methane being a fairly potent greenhouse gas Mm -hmm. that they're contributing to global warming. Mm -hmm. Now, but that's only half the equation for these grasslands. When you look at a healthy grassland, there's also this sizable population of methanotrophs within the soil that are actually consuming. So think of them as scrubbing methane from the atmosphere. And that in turn is potentially offsetting the enteric methane production that we have above ground. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do a true full accounting of what the net effect of beef production is on these grasslands, you need to look at the enteric methane above ground but you also need to subtract out the removal that's happening below ground by methanotropes. Mm-hmm. And a number of studies have shown that healthy grasslands, when functioning properly, are a significant sink for methane. Mm-hmm. So the net effect of these methanotropes is basically to reduce methane. They're pulling methane out of the atmosphere. Okay. And to uh, like help out the methanotrophs, so when we were talking about those soil organisms, we said we had to keep it cool and give them lots of moisture. Is it sort of the same thing or is there other thing that like we as producers can do to give them a hand to sequester more of that methane? I think those are some of the – we kind of know in a generic sense that, again, methanotrophs are regulated by soil temperature and moisture. Okay. But what's unclear at this point is what's the specific relationship between AMP grazing – to go mm. back to this adaptive multi-paddock mm. grazing and the change in the plant community, the change in the soil environment because of the change in litter and mulch and the thermodynamics of the actual soil itself. And how is that changing the suite of the microbial community in the soil? And how is that translating into a change in greenhouse gases? So one of the things that we're doing in the AMP study is we are looking at not only the carbon stock, but also the fluxes of the greenhouse gases. So CO2, which most people immediately think about when they think of a greenhouse gas, but also the trace gases, so uh, methane Mm -hmm. and nitrous oxide as well. So we're looking at all of those. Great. Okay. Can't wait for you guys to publish your results because it's going to make presentations a lot easier for me. Um, as since we're on the topic of uh, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, I'm just curious, Jessica. Like you said, there's different ways you can do it. Is there any like unique examples you can throw out there that you've seen in your research so far? Rotational grazing. I guess yeah, you don't want to leave anybody out. I don't know something that really was memorable. Yeah, well, every ranch is unique. Uh, Good answer. Very diplomatic. Yeah, no, like really everyone has their own ways of doing things that work for them. And just the, this 
the, the broad geographic gradient that we work to cross um, regional practices very hugely as well, right? Okay. So if you go down to Valmarie, Saskatchewan, what an AMP grazer looks like there is wildly different from something north of Edmonton, just because of the different climates. Okay. So everyone's unique, like necessarily. I would say generally, um, AMP grazers tend to they they love the data like they they typically have already had someone out to their ranch looking at things like carbon and um like even plant surveys sometimes uh so they just they just like to know as much about their land as they can speaking broadly incredibly broadly here um yeah and i i don't know in amp ranches they're typically they typically try to maximize as much as they can from every square pocket of their land. So we typically see things like maybe more species, um, not on our study sites as the study only does look at cattle, but we'd see AMP grazed chickens a few times, AMP grazed um, pigs a few times. Huh. It's just that philosophy of getting as much as you can from every bit of your land. I would hate to rotationally graze chickens. It's see. actually really easy. Really? Uh, yeah, they have these pens they pull by other. tractor just really slowly. Oh, okay, okay. So you don't even have to get the chickens out of the pen. Okay, that I could get into. Okay, yeah. I understand now. All right. And um, I'm also wondering because I don't know what I think. It, it, the only type of grazing I ever learned was intensive grazing. And when I think of intensive grazing, it's like, yeah, you know, just kind of hit things hard or quickly move on. But uh, rest has got to be a part of the equation, especially because a lot of this uh, adaptive multi-paddock grazing in theory out here in the prairies were supposed to be mimicking the bison, as I understood it. You know, they had those tight packs, graze really quickly, move off. But there were cases where, you know, the bison didn't come back for years. So I'm just wondering, part of your guys' research or what you're looking into with AMP, is rest being factored into any of this? Part There's a few, there's a few things to touch on with that question. Okay. Um, We've talked about overcompensation before and the idea that a plant can produce uh, more undergrazing than it would if it wasn't undergrazing. And that certainly occurs under certain conditions. At the end of the day, though, if you everything has a limit to how much it can recover and you are removing um, like part of a plant's actual biomass every time, which requires additional energy to regrow. Um, and in certain cases, that's sustainable and in certain cases it isn't. And usually that's dependent on how much time the plant has to regather those resources together and recover. Um, obviously, if you're hitting something too many times, um, it's going to start to to die over the long term, right? So a lot of our, like our study looks at systems that have existed for a minimum of 10 years. For just that reason, we were looking for people who had a quote unquote sustainable system that worked economically and ecologically. Mm. Um, so rest is we, we part of, we already talked about how in addition to just these grazing management systems, we have detailed management data because this is all a gradient as well, right? You, obviously can't put a ranch into uh, two buckets. Mm. And we have collected data on um, the days since rest, um, days since last grazing. So how long average rest period is and the grazing rest period ratio. Mm. So what proportion of time basically is a patch of land spent grazing? 
Um, but I would add that, like, <laughs> as a scientist, um, I, I like to complicate things as much as I can. <laughs> and that's a little, it can be a little bit misleading. It is the best we have. But when you're thinking about how much time an average little patch of land has to recover, if you think about a more extensive system where the livestock are, um, they'll have their, their ice cream plants, right, that they return to again and again. They're creating that patchy landscape. There are certain areas of a pasture that might not be touched for a year or even longer, maybe never. But if you take that number on paper of how long that area hasn't been grazed, it would might be zero because they're there all the time. So it helps to think about scale when you're thinking about rest as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Jessica, I have to admit, you did say something in a previous conversation that nearly made me have an identity crisis uh, when we were talking about the different grasses that are out here. Uh, just because we do have native prairie, but not a heck of a lot of native prairie. And a lot of stuff we have in tame pasture right now is actually not from here. You know, it's, I'm assuming mainly European imports didn't evolve with bison, evolved with other animals. And so then I was starting to wonder, like, well, are we doing it wrong then? Should, if we're not doing it with the right grasses. Uh, but before I have a complete breakdown here, how about we just talk about the difference between those native prairie plants, so those, uh, if I can call them imported plants that we have in a lot of tame pasture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Edward has touched on this um already and the one of the biggest differences is going to be the root to shoot biomass so how much of a plant is below ground how much of a plant is above ground that is hugely different between an introduced species versus a native species um, it, it helps to just as a general rule to keep in mind why each species is the way it is right so these introduced species were agronomically bred species usually from europe um, that were bred to be successful under very intensive systems, usually sheep, um, sometimes cattle, with a lot of repeat grazing in fairly um, moist and um, just generally productive kind of conditions. So they're very good at doing well under a lot of grazing with a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. That's a a general blanket rule here. And because of that, like as Edward has already said, they tend to have fewer resources stored, stored below ground because more is going to be coming from up above with the rain and maybe a bit of a longer growing season. Um, they tend to have like a just less less like lignin to sugar ratios. They're just going to be more nutritious and lead to um, just greater gains from livestock that's eating it than maybe a native species would. Native species are thinking about long-term survival in sometimes quite harsh environments, right? Canada is not exactly, <laughs> not exactly the Bahamas, right? <laughs> so you do have to be very good at persisting under our winters and under how variable variable our climate can be. Um, and uh, droughts that occur quite a lot, right? Like the ones we've had the last few years. So native plants are thinking about surviving under these very limited conditions for a long period of time. So they have a big savings account of, of roots underground, right? They can draw on for repeat years. And uh, yes, they all, they're also adapted to grazing from um, a lot of our native herbivores. So bison would be one, pronghorn would be another, um, which typically had the data on this is, to my understanding, not as rigorous as it could be. Like there are research teams collecting it, but typically probably less. They had more room 
um, two grays than a pasture, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to see the same densities of bison as you might see like a sheep farm in Europe. Mm -hmm. So just less frequencies of grazing and probably more selection allowed. So just because of those different like filters and those like different main challenges in life that you're trying to adapt to, they're very different. Um, they're, they're just so different that way and how they respond to grazing. Okay. Okay. So then I guess because like, a lot of the producers I know, like the reason that they do rotational grazing is because they are trying to mimic the bison and what was here because they're doing it for ecological reasons. They're trying to help the ecosystem out here. Mm -hmm. So are we mimicking the wrong animal then if we're using bison grazing patterns for like, I don't know, Timothy and Brome and Kentucky bluegrass and stuff like that? Should, should we be trying to mimic sheep in Europe more closely? I don't know if you can see this is really bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> I. I think you still have to have a market for whatever you're producing. That's a good point. So some folks would say, does that mean we should get rid of, you know, we should, well, if we go back to the the fact that these grasslands all co-evolve with bison, should we replace all cattle with bison? And I would say, well, how much bison do you want to eat? And, and if there's a limit as to how much bison you want to eat, then I would say, well, we still have to find the, the closest surrogate to a bison. And the, and the reality is that both cattle and bison are bulk feeders. And mm -hmm. for the most part, they are very, very similar in how they feed and what they feed on. They're both bulk feeders consuming large amounts of graminoids. And and so in that regard, uh, I would say that, that cattle are certainly very capable of emulating closely the same types of disturbances. The, the difference is when European settlement occurred, we started taking the whole landscape and chopping it up into little pieces. And that immediately kind of put the kibosh on the historical grazing that we had. Mm. Uh, the, the next best thing is to basically find a way to emulate the type of patterns that, that were there pre-European settlement. Mm. And I think what many of these AMP producers are doing is they're basically trying to say, okay – if these grasslands evolve with these pulse grazing events and these lengthy recovery periods, let's try to emulate that and see if it benefits everything from plant growth to biodiversity to water infiltration to soil carbon. Okay. And then in that case, it doesn't matter if the grass evolved like with yak or camels or sheep. It, it's exactly. more about the ecosystem, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, that, yeah. and that's a matter of personal preference because you could also argue that, that our grasslands didn't evolve with just bison. They also evolved with deer and antelope and with right. elk. And so yeah, if we want to have a true ungulate guild, are we going to bring all of those back? And and many of them are already, but some places too many, if you ask producers. <laughs> so um, the reality is there's still the economics and, and there's the, still the supply side of, of consumer demand. We still have to make the operations fit into uh, an industry. No, that's a fair point. Um, so, Edward, when we talked uh, before we came here, we were talking about, their, I guess, the difference between stocking rates versus grazing systems. And you, and if I'm putting this example out here incorrectly, feel free to correct me when I finally ask my question. 
Uh, but you mentioned that, you know, when guys like Alan Savory put it out there, that, yeah, rotational grazing is going to help you, like, almost double your stocking rates. And then some research came out that said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. It's actually not good. And then that research, with the same research as them, was contradicted. I think Richard Teague was involved in a lot of this. I'm just wondering if we could talk about this controversy and, like, Mm -hmm. is it possible to increase your stocking rates with your grazing system? Or what the heck's the difference between a stocking rate and a grazing system? Okay, well, I just I want to wind back the clock because I think it's important to assign credit for where this this concept of of pulse grazing actually came from. Okay, okay. And it actually came from a French biochemist, believe it or not, a fellow named André Voisin, who was a... Uh, he was a scientist basically in the 1900s and in the mid-1900s came up with this notion called rational grazing. Called it rational grazing. Just another name. Huh? And, 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 and he had four laws associated with rational grazing. And the, the crux of these laws was basically to balance the offtake of leaf area with the optimal rest period to ensure recovery and sustainability of the plant community. So, a lot of what you see now in terms of the spin-off management practices, so whether it's AMP grazing or whether it's holistic grazing or planned grazing or management-intensive grazing or high-intensity, low-frequency gra- low grazing, they're all facsimiles of that. Mm. They're all derived from that, which is this notion that if we take a big paddock and instead of grazing season-long, so all growing season with animals having free choice, divide it up into little paddocks, to try to get more uniform and tight control over where, when, and how often those animals graze. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the the debate that you're referring to mm-hmm. basically comes down to a meta-analysis that was published in 2008 that basically said, well, we've sifted through these 30 or 40 research uh, studies that have all compared these different versions of management intensive grazing or AMP grazing or something like that. Mm-hmm and compared it to conventional season-long grazing or continuous grazing, and they said there's no difference. Hmm. So they basically concluded that on average, it really doesn't pay, at least in terms of the maintenance of grassland condition or in terms of greater biomass productivity to implement these specialized rotational systems. And when that happened, of course, some of the press ran with it and said, well, look, we really don't have to rotationally graze anymore. So basically... The baby was thrown out with a bathwater. Just everything went out right away. And they said, there's no point rotational grazing. And so many producers got very, very upset because they said, you've been telling us to rotationally graze for decades. And now you're telling us it's not important anymore. But I think to really understand the limitations of the studies that went into that meta-analysis, you have to look at some of the intricacies of how they did their research. For example, they didn't run it for very long. Many of these trials were done for three, four, or five years. That's not long enough to necessarily manifest the true biological effects that you need to, to, to prove that there's a difference. You might have to run a grazing system study for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Um, they also hopelessly confounded stocking rate with grazing system. So stocking rate is in essence, the total measure of aggregate forage demand that we're going to impose on a plant community. And we know that if you hit a plant too hard and a plant community too hard, you are going to degrade it. You're going to exceed its fundamental tolerance and its ability to survive. Mm -hmm. And so if you double the stocking rate, you're, you're not really testing a difference in grazing systems. 
you're testing a doubling of the stocking rate. And of course, doubling of the stocking rate we know is going to degrade the grassland. And so a, a fairer approach would be to test two different grazing systems using the same stocking rate. That would be a fair comparison. And the most important thing that uh, Teague, when, when he basically came out with his rebuttal paper yeah. and said, well, wait a minute, there are some weaknesses in, in the previous studies that have been done, including the meta-analysis uh, conclusions, which is that true ranches demonstrate flexibility over time. They're adaptive. So if it gets dry, they change their stocking on the fly. They change the length of the grazing period, the length of the rest period. So they're constantly adjusting. Well, as scientists, we like to eliminate all the noise. And so by doing that, we fix treatments. But the fixation, so having constant treatments year in, year out, is the exact thing that a rancher never does. They practice true adaptive management year after year after year. They adapt from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. And so if you take the flexibility, the adaptive nature out of the experiment, what are you really testing? Mm. And so our study is unique because we're actually working, as Jessica alluded to, at the rancher level. So we're comparing ranchers where their landscape, their plant communities and their soils are going to be the artifact of a decade plus of ongoing management on an adaptive basis. Mm. Okay, so that's what's very unique about what we're doing as opposed to what's been done in the past. And hopefully that will shed a little bit more light on where, when and how some of these rotational grazing practices may actually benefit the ecosystem. I actually feel kind of bad for you guys just because of all those changes. Like it just feels like you plug one hole in the dike and then another one springs open leaking. Cause I'm just thinking of cameras last year, the year before the, the farm I was on, like, you know, we, we had to calculate it out. We're gonna take 30% off. But then when the drought hit, like, no, 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 we just switched that. And then we went to 80% halfway through the year. And then for you guys, I could just see you pulling your hair out over that. But Godspeed. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Not to discourage anybody. I, uh, I wish we were laughing as much as you are. You're <laughs> probably going to want to record one of these again. Um, as for... Uh, I, <laughs> I still have most of my hair. So. <laughs> Not too bad. Good, good, good. Um, and as I said before, like I'm the only grazing system I'm familiar with is AMP. And I really, really do enjoy it. But I also recognize it is time consuming. So I'm thinking... As a producer who probably has an off-farm job, got a lot going on, barely has any free time, why would a producer start doing AMP grazing when it's clearly more time-consuming than if you want to call it conventional grazing? I think they have a whole bunch of motivating factors, okay. and, and but it's probably going to vary among producers. The, the, the first one is that if you take a tract of land and you subdivided it into pieces, the first thing you will do is you'll get more uniform utilization to some degree because you're confining animals into one fixed area at a time. So if you think of a really large pasture where animals are in all year round, they might spend 80% of their time on 20% of the field. Mm. So just the act of physically dividing it up and moving them around, you're going to get at least some degree of enhanced utilization spatial utilization across that landscape. So that's one reason to do it, okay? okay? 
Um, the uh, second one is most many of these AMP ranchers, if you talk to them, they almost consider themselves grass farmers before they do uh, cattle f- producers. In other words, they're managing the grass. The, the, the beef cattle are just the vehicle to maintain profitability. But really, their eye is constantly on what's going on in that grassland. Mm-hmm. And and what can they do to to optimize it? So they're paying attention to subtle things like the stage of growth of the plants. They're trying to make sure their cattle are in each paddock just when it's at the right time time of of growth. So it's at maximum forage quality. So they're trying to maximize the the uh, gains per animal because they're getting their optimal protein and energy intake and so on. And even those, they're sure there's going to be some added costs for water and for fencing and things like that. Nowadays, the fencing costs are relatively cheap with electric fencing. Um, but but these producers really pay attention to their animals as well. They check them every day. If they're moving, rotating every day, they're inspecting their animals every day. So they could, they're very handleable those animals they know right away if there's a sick animal that needs attention because it has pick up pink eye or uh, foot rot so the, there are all kinds of animal husbandry benefits from monitoring mm, okay well, i could definitely feel like this year like i didn't do cattle at all just vegetables but like having that day-to-day contact with the cattle I, i've noticed i missed it it's not like they're great conversationalists or anything like that but being around the herd and just keeping an eye on them and working with them in a way to help out those ecosystem services as well as like sequestering carbon in the ground if you're trying to maximize everything you can out of a piece of land like whether it's because you have less land or not as edwards alluded that's a great system to do that with mm, oh, totally yeah agree. and i've even heard like we aren't grass farmers we're soil microbe farmers like they think it's such a fine scale ecosystems level a lot of the time mm. I, I try and point out to folks quite often that most actually producers are like closet scientists like the, the nitty-gritty they really like getting mm-hmm. into it down to that microbial level so yeah. d- I, I also just want to circle back to the revenue stream mm. Mm. so right now the only revenue stream that those cattle producers are able to receive is from whatever they're producing in terms of the beef cattle themselves. Mm. But if we can provide some data to indicate that, wait a minute, there are certain management practices that store more carbon, reduce greenhouse gases, what is it worth to society? Mm. No, I think it's a really fair point. And yeah, I, I guess... I guess that's a good follow-up question. Do you see that society sometime in our future? I like to think so. Okay. You've been in this for a while, though. <laughs> we, 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 we have. I believe we will get there. But I think what's going to have to happen is society is going to have to become more and more interested in where their food is coming from, which I believe is happening already. You're seeing the consumer awareness. But the other thing that has to happen, we have to have really good data on what impacts, the full suite of impacts on what these management systems are actually doing. Mm-hmm. Like right now, what, what tends to capture headlines is we have too many cattle, cattle produce methane, cattle are degrading the ecosystem. It's not a good choice, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But I would argue that there are sizable areas of Western Canada that are marginal land, support cattle, produce beef, 
And that's the best use of that land. If the alternative is plowing it under, mm. then I would not want to see that happen. Mm. No, I definitely agree. And then we think like right now, it's, I guess it pays to actually plow it under and then get paid for doing no-till agriculture. So, eh. Correct. And that, that's what's disconcerting. Mm. If, the, if the opportunity cost is plow it under and grow crops, mm. monoculture, where the soil is eroding, we have lower biodiversity, or pave it over, because urban industrial sprawl is also happening. That's a good point. Yeah. Both of those pressures are eating away at that critical resource. Mm-hmm. And you do see some examples of actually, I think it was California. I think they were working on an avoided grassland conversion. So it's not like like a make-believe idea that can't happen, that there are actually some right. people that are trying to put this into practice right now. Right. But there has to be the will. And typically, there has to be the market will. And the market will will come eventually, especially if the public will is there. Mm, definitely agree. It's got a lot of work to do with uh, rural roots. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just anecdotally, this is such an urgent need. Like this was hands down the hardest part of conducting this field work was talking to producers who are by no means in it for the money. They are in it because they love their land, because they've done this for generations and generations. And almost all their neighbors are canola farmers now. And it's getting harder and harder to be able to keep things afloat and not convert every year. Like the subsidies just ecologically, they make so much sense and the word just needs to spread. Mm, I agree. I think most of the producers I know that do practice rotational grazing, those are the ones that are just barely getting by with what they're producing. And even a few friends of mine that are trying to sell their farm, the fact that it's like in a conservation easement, which, you know, they can still graze on that as far as understood. But yeah, you can't rip that up and turn it into canola. It's making it really difficult to sell the farm. A lot of people are like, I don't want that. I can't make any money off that. Yeah. Like, frankly, it's perverse, Mm. given the amount of free services these lines are providing to society now. Mm. I agree. Um, I'm going to wrap things up, talk about those plants again. Uh, Jessica, just wondering what your thoughts were. And I guess you have touched on this in this conversation. Um, Like, why should us, as land stewards, as agricultural producers, as people, really work hard to protect those grassland plants that you're particularly fascinated with. And like I said, sort of the example of myself being somebody from out East, like, you know, we're all kind of passionate about trees, save the forest, but like passionate about grasslands. A lot of us are. I remember when I drove out here with my grandfather in across Canada and we hit the prairies. He's like, there's no life out here. Everything's just dead. I'm like, well, no, you know, you got to like look into the grass and stuff like that. But uh, why? And maybe this is me playing devil's advocate, but why should we really care about those prairie plants? Yeah, there's uh, there's a few different approaches I can take to this, but I'll start by saying that um even I was surprised to hear about this, but prairie grasslands um, in Western Canada are the world's most endangered ecosystem, hands down. Um, more than the Amazon rainforest, more than a coral reef. Land use conversion being a major factor here, uh, they proportionally they have the highest rate of loss of any ecosystem in the world. Um, so I think that that fact alone should merit them far more conservation attention than they currently have, just because they are so unique. We've touched on a lot of the ecosystem services they provide already, um, and that we're still learning about now with research like our project. 
Um, part of part of them being understudied relative to other ecosystems means we also don't even really understand what we're missing and what maybe we're losing compared to other ecosystems. Um, so yeah, just that alone, just ecosystem services wide, how rare they are and how unique they are should be enough in my opinion. Um, I think that they're beautiful. And I think that the more time that you spend in them, the more you learn to appreciate that. I don't know who originally uh, said this quote, but I've heard it a few times that anyone can love the mountains, but it takes heart and soul to love the prairies. And I think that more people should try. <laughs> we have some great, um, some great places across Canada to do that in. Um, and just stepping back a little bit, part of what really inspires me about the prairies in particular is they are ecosystems which have always been marginalized. It's true. And um, I think that they have been historically forgotten about. But there are a lot of um, interests and stakeholders who use these lands. There's hunters. There's um, hikers. There's recreationalists. There's, of course, grazers. Um, and now we're seeing more and more industry industry with things like oil development. And land managers in the prairies have been able to, in my opinion, successfully balance all of these different stakeholders for years and years and years. And a big part of what rangeland ecology is, is balancing all of these interests together while still maintaining a sustainable ecosystem. And as, as the world becomes like more and more full of people on like less and less natural lands, the ability to balance all of these different interests is a skill we absolutely have to learn if we are going to sustainably manage the world in general. And I think that that philosophy that has been cultivated across the prairies for years and years is something that needs more respect and it needs more um, just awareness from the public in general. Because I think it's a great template for a sustainable way forward. Making things into parks and taking all the humans off of it in order to sustain these services is not going to work. <laughs> not in the long term at all. Ranchers are the original conservationists. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, want to elaborate? <clears throat> well, they, they are... They are the the very first folks that came out. And especially when you look at the ranchers that are out there now, for example, go, go to the special areas in southeastern Alberta, a very dry, variable, risky environment to actually operate in. Mm -hmm. But the ranchers that are there are some of the hardiest you will find in Canada and maybe North America and maybe globally because they have learned the value of that grass, the sensitivity of that grass, and they've learned to balance the two. Mm. And if they didn't, they disappeared. Many of them disappeared in the 30s, okay. a long, long, long time ago. And so I think we can learn quite a bit from some of those producers out there. You know, you think about the, the, the inherent knowledge that's out there in the agricultural world and and I don't think we fully appreciate it and this AMP study is giving us maybe a glimpse into some of the the novelty and the innovation that some of these producers are are exercising mm. if the alternative as I said earlier is plowing it or paving it over then we're in trouble mm. we're in a lot of trouble 
And Edward, I would just add under the current capitalist system of Western society, as indigenous people did in a lot of cases create these lands through their management practices such as burning mm. so I, I would argue they were the original conservationists um though i'm not sure how that term is being used mm. and more and more um we're trying in science to meaningfully incorporate their knowledge uh which we're only now starting to realize the value of i i, I totally agree with that mm. and I, I was referring to post-european settlement mm. so they, yeah, absolutely no, thanks for jumping in there. Yeah, it is interesting that because you know, when we talk about AMP and at least as I was taught it, like the reason why the bison were in these tight packs is because the predators are around. But usually when we talk about predators, we talk about the prairie grizzly, we talk about wolves. But yeah, the 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 humans that were there for a very, very long time, they were also helping facilitate that process and create the prairies as we know it really. So mm-hmm. yeah, thanks for bringing it up. That's great. And um Okay, my last question for you, Jessica, is more of a personal one. Uh, we, we tend to work with a lot of PhD students and candidates from this particular university, actually. I haven't really worked with anybody else from any other university. And I kind of get this feel or impression, like, it, it's important to make sure your research is, like, practical and relevant. Like, I literally had a guy sit down with me. He just wanted me to know what he was doing so I could pass it on to producers because like, i just want my research to matter and <laughs> is that all you say to somebody <laughs> uh, maybe it's paraphrasing a little too hard over there uh, i'm sorry that's very relatable oh is it okay <laughs> that i misspoke so i guess what i'm wondering like i said i don't know if i'm asking you as a scientist or just as another human being what are your hopes for your research uh, yeah, so uh, I think <laughs> I think wanting your research to mean something to someone at all is a very common goal. <laughs> um, personally, I just want what I do to help as many people as possible. And I, I really do mean that. So whether it informs policy developers in um, putting data to better guide their ability to create management decisions that help people, whether it helps grazing managers know what grazing looks like across Canada and maybe help them guide their own management decisions to a certain degree, um, or whether it's to the general public um, to give them a better, um, just a window into how complicated grazing can be and how sophisticated a lot of these decisions actually are. Um, And uh, just all of the benefits that uh, ranching and grazing management can have for society at large. The more that I hit um, the greatest number of people, the happier I'll be. I think at least in a research context, it's important to note that the at least the primary impetus for the AMP study is looking at greenhouse gases, right? Greenhouse gases and soil carbon. So any other ancillary information we get on soil microbes and water infiltration and all those other kinds of things, the plant community, that they're going to be used to help interpret the greenhouse gas changes and the carbon changes, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the primary. But in other contexts, the biodiversity responses, whether it's the plant biodiversity responses that Jessica is studying Mm. or species at risk or consumptive biodiversity, you know, populations of deer or antelope or pheasant or whatever the case is, sharp-tailed grouse, 
those could also be very important mm-hmm. in other contexts. And they also have economic value. Mm-hmm. So species at risk may be through ecotourism. Sure. That's fair. And point. we we don't know what those numbers are. Right. Uh, you know, we kind of know a little bit on on hunting. We know it's a pretty big dollar price tag. I don't know whether we know exactly on on native grassland as opposed to other areas. We would need surveys to partition all of that. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of revenue pies out there, revenue pools, and economic activity that's expressly tied to those other ecosystem goods and services. Okay. Right. Okay. So. I always find myself straying back and asking, what is it worth? If I talk to a hunter, I ask them, what is it worth to have good access to good quality habitat with a good population of animals mm-hmm. so that you can be successful and put meat in your freezer? What is it worth to you? Because right now it's free. They don't have to pay anything. It's true. Yeah. And so, you know, we drive around with our... $60,000 trucks pulling an $80,000 RV and a $10,000 quad. And what we're unwilling to pay something to the landowner who's subsidizing that wildlife population. That's a fair point. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's a consumptive biodiversity, the ecotourism on the, the other biodiversity, the dark skies, you know, what's the value of all these things? And we haven't done a really good job figuring out, A, what those values are and making sure that revenue flows back. Mm. And that will be the challenge. And I think as social perceptions change and as <clears throat> the ranching community already sees it, you know, they openly recognize that they need to know what that information is, the answer to those questions for social license to operate. Mm-hmm. But that the size of that database supporting the biophysical and the, the economic valuation, it needs to be built before we can start kind of restructuring how we allocate our resources, including to ranchers. I agree. Even like when I think of like like drought and flood mitigation too. Like Huge. Yeah, exactly. But like how do you, you – like it's so hard to put – I'd find it difficult to put like what, what's the dollar value to that, you know. Stuff. But they've done it in other parts of the world. Oh, okay. where they, where yeah. They've looked at watersheds. Okay. And they've, in New York, there was an example from New York where they looked at a watershed and they said, we can upgrade this water treatment facility for hundreds of millions of dollars. And they said, yeah, we, we can make it bigger and better and, and clean more water and clean more of the impurities out of the water. But then they, someone got the bright idea to say, wait a minute, what if we take some of that money at lower cost? and change the management practices happening immediately adjacent to the riparian areas upstream. Right. And it worked. So not only did they save money in the long run because they didn't have to upgrade their water treatment facility to the same extent, but they also took a pool of those resources and reallocated it to the landowners to change management. And so it wasn't just water quality that probably was helped. It was wildlife habitat and all kinds of other things along the way. Interesting. So sometimes you need to rethink the paradigm in order to create a paradigm shift, right? Rethink the problem to create a paradigm shift. Definitely, definitely. I think, yeah, I guess because a lot of times we put a price to things that we make with our hands, right? Whereas opposed, like something that nature makes, we're just like, I don't know how much that costs, you know, because you don't know what the, the input costs were, I guess. I well, and the economist will just say it's willingness to pay. Huh. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Right. But if you're getting something for free right now, 
The willingness to pay is probably zero. That's true. And that's one of the big problems that we actually face because, for example, the carbon sequestration that's right now at maximum levels in our native grasslands mm -hmm. at or near maximum levels is worth nothing mm -hmm. because we're already providing it for free. Right. Yeah. And yet, if we convert that land and, as Jessica was saying, start tilling it, mm -hmm. we're suddenly eligible for a, a payment for practicing minimum tillage, even though we're going to lose 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the organic carbon. Isn't that how insurance works? You just set your car on fire and you get a new car. That's how I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, definitely have this conversation often with producers, like, what's it going to take? Because obviously people aren't going to pay more for food, or I'd like yeah. to think that they'll pay maybe a little bit more. But And there's people who legitimately can't f afford food prices right yeah. now, and you have to respect that. So you can't really crank up the price of food to compensate them for that. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be a subsidy thing? I don't know. One guy threw out there is like, man, if you just gave me like a guaranteed basic income, I could do whatever the hell it is because then it doesn't matter if my crops fail or not. I'm going to have right. that so I can do the right thing by the land. So. Right. So if somebody else absorbs the risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then, then you just become a custom farmer, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's not how ranchers operate. No, and that's, that's not and that's not what ranchers want, actually. Their number one of their number one objectives is to be independent. That's a good point too. Yeah. And because I did have a graduate student that looked at that and its independence oh, yeah. is at right up there. Interesting. Okay. Very, very, very important. They want to be independent and make their own management decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fail or succeed. Okay. It's it's their decision. That is sounding very familiar right <clears throat> now. Um, the, one other thing I'll maybe just yeah, go for it. touch yeah. on that, you know, this notion that AMP grazing or HM grazing or whatever can result in this huge boon in, in stocking rates mm. is a little unfortunate because if you think about trying to implement a management regime by doubling the stocking rate, it's almost fait complete that you're going to fail Okay. because you're, you're pushing the system so hard that in all likelihood, it's going to fail even before it, you know, gets going. Mm -hmm. But if, if through a specialized grazing system, we can increase yields by even 10%, mm -hmm. that would be significant. Definitely. 12%, yeah. 15% would be very substantial already. Mm -hmm. So I think most ranchers, if they're, if if they could have a relative reasonable understanding that they were going to get ten or fifteen percent on their return mm. by going through and switching from a continuous to an AMP type system, mm -hmm. that might be enough to flip many of them because ten to fifteen percent is very significant. Definitely, yeah, yeah. right? Well, it's definitely like a very like number savvy demographic like, it, you know, the numbers they spin off on their phone like they're great businessmen uh, right but, but I mean a 10 to 15 percent return would be much more realistic and maybe more likely based on even some of the, the the work that we've done looking at some of the biomass improvements we're seeing okay. they're not a hundred percent but they might be 10 15 20 percent mm. but that's nothing to sneeze at yeah, you know, sure. in agriculture, yeah. when we talk about a ten percent improvement, my eyes would be really be lighting up if I'm a wheat farmer or a canola farmer. That's true. So I'm pretty sure a cow calf producer would be thinking the same thing. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. We are proud to be a project of the Stetler Learning Center in East Central Alberta, and when we're not doing the podcast, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions runs workshops farm field days, webinars, 
and we assist rural communities develop their own community-owned solar projects. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots of Climate Solutions team is Brenda Barrett, Angie O'Connor, Marie Galanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and myself, Derek Leahy. Dana Penrice, Kimberly Cornish, and Mark Fox sit on the advisory committee. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. This episode was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media. And the episode was recorded at the University of Alberta in Edmonton on Treaty 7 land and in Métis Region 4. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate. Hey guys, it's me again. After listening to the recording, I realized I totally messed up on the treaty number there. Edmonton's in Treaty 6, not Treaty 7. So my apologies to the Plains, the Wood Cree, the Sato, the Dene, and the Dakota for mucking that up. I'll do better next time. <laughs>